0: Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives.
1: A ministry of Calvary Mac.
0: Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. We're so glad you found us, especially if this is your first time listening. This is a place where real women share real stories of real hope. And we've been doing this now for over 100 episodes, over 100 stories, and it's such a blessing. So we're so glad you're here for another incredible story of hope. And my guest tonight is Jen. Jen's actually the one we can all thank for introducing us to Ashley, who is our 100th episode guest. So for those of you who have been following along for the past three years for all 100 episodes, we're so glad you're back again for another one. Before I have Jen introduce herself, I do want to give a trigger warning for all of you listeners. Sometimes we have episodes that need a warning at the beginning. Uh, we are going to be covering some very mature topics, some very hard topics, and they might be emotionally triggering for some of your listeners. So please consider your heart, consider other ears that might be listening to this as you decide when and how to listen to the story. But as always, I do encourage you to stick with us because we are absolutely not going to leave this story in any of the, the dark or hard or or ugly places. We are going to find the redemption and the hope and the light and the joy and just the amazingness that God can do no matter what your story is. So, with that little warning behind us, let me welcome Jen. Thank you so much for being here. And before we start with your story, would you just introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: First of all, I want to say thank you. You you started this whole thing giving a trigger warning, and I just feel like I need a T-shirt. I need a T-shirt that says "Prepare to be triggered." Like if I could walk into a room <laughs> and and you know my husband's there, then he could just prepare be prepared to be triggered and. I'm just kidding, it's not really like that. I just feel like that's a really great point because this is my life, and sometimes I forget that it's hard, and that's a testimony to what God has done. It was hard at one point, and now I forget that it's hard. So triggers or trigger warning is very appropriate. No T-shirt needed. Okay. okay, so first of all, I just want your listeners to know that you know, despite the sort of dateline documentary vibe that my story can give, the premise of today is really how my story affected my identity. And how I related to myself and others. And I'm turning 50 this year. This is an exciting year because 10 years ago, I didn't even want to live. And so I'm turning 50 this year. Um, my husband and I are both on our second marriage. We have a blended family of five kids, have a grandbaby and a half. One's uh, going to be born this year in uh, November and i really feel like for the first time in my life i'm living my best life but it really took took me 50 years to get here so my hope is in sharing my story that it won't take others as long to discover what what i have so that's me in a nutshell
0: i so appreciate how you said it took you you know kind of this long to live this particular life and you're hoping that you can help other women maybe find that faster <laughs> or 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 a little earlier because for those, who if you've never listened to episode one, you know, I encourage you go back, listen to the very first episode where we talked with Bonnie, who was the creator of Story Night, and one of her goals, one of, one of the purposes of this whole story night ministry was to kind of get back to the way things used to be in culture where women would share their stories with each other. And particularly women who were maybe a little older would be sharing with women who were younger than them, and they would learn from that. And it would just be this incredible cycle of generational advice giving, sharing, guidance, learning, rather than kind of the culture we live in today, which is very much uh, social media, Fake book. This is, I'm only going to share the good stuff of my life. So I love getting to do this because this just reminds us that one, we really can't judge each other's story by just a picture. And I know ladies, you're only hearing the audio, but I can see Jen's face. And if you could see her in person, you would fall into that trap of thinking, well, she has it all together. Her life's great. There's this beautiful woman. She doesn't look a day over 30. And she said she's turning 50. And she's telling us she's had this very hard story. Like it, it just, you wouldn't, think that when you, if you met her walking down the street and that's something I hope we can remember about women every day, whoever you, you know, pass in the grocery store or somebody who's bothering you or that you don't get along with just kind of knowing she's got a story, she's got a story and you probably don't know what that story is.
1: Mm -hmm. Love that. You know, we have to break down how we, how we may view people. Yeah. Remember that they're just like us. Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: And we're going to dive into a story and some of you will relate to many chapters of this story because you've lived the same types of things and you will be listening going, oh my gosh, me too. Somebody gets me. I'm not the only one. Yes. That's what I experienced. Others of you will listen to this and this is not your personal experience. This is very foreign to you. And I'm so glad you're listening too, because this really helps us to understand each other and each other's stories and the things we go through. It helps us to be uh, more understanding and more sensitive to those around us, even though our stories might be different. So we're going to kind of go back to your birth, right? And we're going to start with the first 12 years of your life and hear about some of these key things that formed you. So with that, Jen, I'm going to hand it over to you and ask you to tell us about your childhood. All right.
1: Well, this is the first time for me. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to share this. Hopefully I will be articulate in doing so. I was born in 1973 and my mom at the time uh, was a single mom of two kids and my mom and my dad actually were not together at the time. So at this point she was having three kids trying to figure out how to take care of all three of them at the same time while working full time and, and just surviving life. When you look back at the history I don't obviously don't remember that time but when you look back at the history I was with a mom who was highly stressed and looking just to function in life so I say that in retrospect because my mom passed away a couple of months ago and I want to honor her story as I share some of the raw aspects of how her story impacted me so uh, I recognize the position she was in when she had three kids all by herself but when my parents did get back together We moved to Alaska and my parents started a church up there in Anchorage, Alaska. And what I do remember is growing up as a child is loving Jesus. I was introduced to Jesus. I had the joy of the Lord in my heart. He was my everything. I literally can almost palpable feel his presence. Even now thinking back to myself as a young child, loving the Lord. And then even, and even than that. I, I love the Lord, but I still felt a hunger to be seen and to be known it, like a drive, like almost like a, like a child who's starving. I was starved to be seen and to be known. And to this day, I don't fully understand that, but I do know that around the age of five, I was in the hospital with pneumonia and I was on the verge of dying. And my siblings remember this and re- retell the story really well. And their version of it is quite different than mine, but mine came down to this. I was in this oxygen tank or tent, and I loved the feeling from all the attention that I was getting. I was being seen. People were coming to visit me. They were bringing me gifts. It was one of the most, one of the biggest times in my life where I felt fully seen and there's no time to unpack any of that here or now, but th- just know that from the beginning of my life, from the age of five, there was a need to be seen, to be loved. And then you fast forward a little bit, going into fourth grade, um, I struggled a lot with with math and, and with writing or spelling. And I, I kind of felt stupid, but I was this kid that was always joyful and cheerful. And I knew that that was kind of my position in life. My job was to be, to make others smile and to be a good presence or happy presence in their life. But when it came to repeating fourth grade, I felt rejected. I felt stupid. And yet they tell me I was smart and I just needed extra time. It didn't feel that way. I, it, it actually felt like they were placating me that, sure, you're telling me I, I'm this, but my reality is telling me that I'm not smart. and I need to stay behind. So kind of put a bookmark there. And, you know, my reality versus what I was being told I was experiencing were different things. And then later on another situation where my reality was different from what I was being told was I constantly had ankle pain. I I remember the ankle pain. I I don't know that they were sprained ankles or, or what, but my ankles constantly hurt. And I was told that what I was experiencing was in my head, that no one's ankles hurt that often. And so again, what I was experiencing versus being what I was told I was experiencing were very different things. And then to continue with that theme, my parents were would argue a lot and I knew something was wrong and I would ask them about it, but then I was told that what I was experiencing wasn't real and they were actually fine. These are all forms of gaslighting and we'll get into that a little bit more. And then later on my parents' divorce came in and that actually relieved me a little bit because what my gut felt all along Was actually what was taking place in my life. It had actually lined up. So there were these bullet points of being told that what I was experiencing wasn't really real. And then this one moment of, oh, they're getting divorced. I was right. I was right. Something was wrong the whole time. But then after that, I fell into this role with both of my parents that I needed to continue to be cheery, be happy, be compliant. All of these things made me lovable And that is the first survival lie that I can remember. There's a, if you ever go through the Genesis process, there are survival lies and there are projected lies. Projected lies are the lies that are spoken to us out of someone's mouth or that through life experiences that we see something take place. Those have been projected to us either through experience or through the actual words of somebody else. The survival lie is a lie that we tell ourselves to survive a moment, a situation, or a period of time. So when I discovered that being cheery, happy, and compliant made me lovable, that was a lie that I clung onto and really held onto, honestly, to some degree to this day. And I'm working on that. So that's essentially my childhood in a very short block of time there. <laughs>
0: Well, and what's so wonderful, and, and if I can use that word, about how you've been able to now look back over those twelve years is that you're identifying things that were forming you, and you were identifying what was what was actually happening compared to what you thought was happening. And man, that takes some analysis, or you know, maybe that's work with um, a counselor or a therapist, you know, somebody that can really kind of help you go back and untangle that because. There are probably a lot of people that would never think of ankle pain as something that might be significant in your development and your foundation of how you view life and what you what you think. Now you used a term, gaslighting. And (laughs) I think, you know, it's definitely a term that's being used more and more. I think more and more people know what that means, but I never want to make an assumption. So the two terms you had you use just in your first 12 years were placating and gaslighting. And so before we go into your teenage years, would you give a quick explanation of what you mean by placating and gaslighting? Because that'll be important as we go through your story.
1: So placating is to soothe or to mollify, especially by concessions or to appease someone. And gaslighting, honestly, isn't too far off from that. It's using a specific type of manipulation where the manipulator is trying to get someone to question their own reality, their own memory, or their own perception. And usually with both placating and with gaslighting, in most cases, the manipulation is kind of the key factor there. It's usually because the person that's doing it Well, you can't really psychoanalyze this too much, but usually the the manipulation is made as a form to dismiss what the other person's experiencing because that person really doesn't know how to deal with it or doesn't want to deal with what the other person is experiencing. To In my experience, in my childhood years, this is different in my adult years, but in my childhood years, the dismissiveness of the, the gaslighting was because I don't think my mom had the time and energy to deal with me. So it was a way to dismiss my reality, insert a reality that worked better for her. And you'll see how this plays out. So my parents got divorced. We moved back to a little town in California. I continued to use my, my persona of being cheery, happy, and compliant to make friends. So I made friends really easily. And most of the time people didn't really know what I was experiencing because of this cheery disposition that I had. One of the key things that formed me though, around seventh grade, I specifically remember I was, I was sleeping and there was a, going wouldn't say ruckus. I don't know where I got that word from. It's such an old word. It's a 50 old lady word. I, there was a ruckus, there was a ruckus downstairs and, <laughs> and some arguing and which was abnormal because at this point I was living with my mom and my dad lived a couple of hours away. And he comes up the stairs and they're arguing and I can hear the argument get closer and closer and closer and the door opens. And like, all I can see is the light from the hallway coming in. And, and my parents were saying, you have to say it now. You have to choose now. I'm like, what are you talking about? When my parents got divorced, the one thing that they promised me I would never have to do would be to choose between them. And I really, really believed that that would never happen. And in this moment, it was happening. And they literally had, my arms were like a tug of war. Both of them had one arm and were literally pulling me side to side. Now it wasn't violent, but it was intense. And I remember my mom saying, Jenny, Jenny, you have to tell him, you have to tell him who you want to live with. And I remember sobbing because I was going to have to reject one parent. I was going to have to let one parent down I was going to have to communicate to one parent that they were less important than the other. And remember, my job in life (laughs) was to be compliant and lovable and happy and cheery. And this, I could not do that in this moment. And finally, I uttered out the words that that I wanted to live with my mom and my dad left the house falling. And from that point on, gosh, I've never actually said these things out loud. So at least in this form. So from that point on, I felt such a tremendous responsibility in life to not let people down, to do all I could in any situation to um, lessen the intense or negative feelings that others had. So that's where that kind of survival lie sort of entered in my life at that time.
0: There's something really powerful about going back and thinking through, writing down your autobiography, and and you are no stranger to podcast and telling parts of your story. When we first met, and you sent me a list of some of the <laughs> things you've been. I said, like, "Oh my goodness, she has she has told her story and her chapters like over and over and over in so many different formats on so many different platforms, and and yet you have never done this, where it's your whole." autobiography in one spot. Yeah,
1: Yeah. this is definitely a first timer for me. And I can, I know something good's happening here. I don't know what it is, but thank you for the opportunity. So that was about seventh grade. And then at the same time, um, so my parents, like I said, were divorced. I've now chosen to stay with my mom. We move into a different house, um, which was not a new, a new, is that a word? tonight, today, it is a new, it was not a new to me to, to move from house to house to house. I kind of liked it. But in this one situation, we moved in to this home and my mom started, I think she started dating at the time. And, and so she wasn't really around a whole lot. And I remember this one time that my mom was missing. I hadn't seen her for three days. And my sister god bless her she was such a good big sister she worked a couple of jobs she went to high school she paid a lot of the bills she would make me food i mean she was just a really good big sister at, at 13 i didn't really appreciate it <laughs> the way i do now um but nonetheless i didn't want to have anything to really do with my sister i wanted my mom around and she was had been missing for three days i had no idea where she was finally, one day after school, I went over to a person who I considered to be my aunt looking for my mom. And you could see the uh, confusion on her face. Like, I'm not sure what to do. And I walk into the house and I, uh, she says, wait here. And she goes into a different room and she knocks on the door and she says, Shirley, Jenny's here. She wants to see you. And all I can hear from the other room is, Tell her to go away. Tell her to go away. I don't want to see her. I don't want her to see me like this. Please don't let her see me like this. Of course, I hear this from the living room and I go to the room and she's in a corner sliding down the wall until she gets to the floor and she's in a fetal position and she's rocking and she just keeps saying, I didn't want you to see me like this. I didn't want you to see me like this. And I didn't understand what was going on would have been taking place in my mom's life is she had become severely anorexic and she was hiding. She didn't, I'm sure my sister knew to some degree. I feel like my sister always knew all the things <laughs> in hindsight, but at that time I didn't know. I didn't know my mom was anorexic. I didn't know she was broken. I didn't know she was hiding. I'm 13 trying to figure my own life out here. So that's when uh, the role started to reverse where I started to become the support for my mom instead of my mom being the support for me. And then as time would go on, you know, um, I would continue to be her cheerleader and, and then there was this sense of enmeshment that was taking place. Like the role, role reversals were just happening all over the place. But during that role reversal, there was still this power differential where she was still the authority in my life, but I was the comforter. So it was very confusing. Like I knew what my role was, but I still had to be under her authority, which was very confusing. Then growing up, you know, with her, she would, she would be doing things like smoking and hiding it. And then she tried to get me to believe that it was in my head that she wasn't really smoking even though my nose knew all my senses knew. So there was some more gaslighting, you know, that was taking place. This theme of your reality, isn't your reality. Don't trust your gut this. You don't know what you're thinking mentality just sort of continued as this thread that sort of wove through uh, this part of my life as well. So add to all that. So my mom is this mess in this corner. I'm this 13 year old girl trying to figure things out. And then I've got my beautiful, tenacious, hardworking epitome of who i wanted to be sister. Uh, I felt like I couldn't measure up to her. So it, so it just kind of bookmark that as well. Because it was then in this same house that we lived in when all this was taking place, that this really cute boy was moving in next door. And let me tell you, Jess, he was really cute. He, I, I can see it now. He was jumping out of the back of a truck. And he was running into the house and I stuck my head through this little bay window that was in the kitchen. And I said, that, that is the boy that I am going to marry. And you might dismiss it at the age of 13, but I knew, I knew that that was the boy I was going to marry. And so I met him a couple of days later living next door. And we ended up dating all through uh, high school and. By the time I was 15, uh, he and I had had sex, but not because I was so in love, but because I didn't want to disappoint him. Can you see the theme? <laughs> Don't disappoint others. Some might call that codependency and another subject for another day, but I had sex with him at 15. And, but the, the thing was, is that I didn't want to be a sexually active couple. That's not, I was really afraid of being a bad girl. And I was also really afraid of being pregnant because my mom said, if you ever get pregnant, you will be kicked out of this house. And the irony to that is my mom had her first child on her 16th birthday. So it doesn't really compute very well, but at the same time, I was really afraid of getting pregnant. And I also just wanted to be a good girl. Um, I was really afraid of, and and I'm not saying that girls who have sex are bad girls. I'm just saying that my thought process was that if I act a certain way, that would equate to me being good and me being good would equate to me being loved. So essentially we were going through high school. He graduated before I did, but we ended up actually breaking up because I didn't want to be a sexually active couple. And he's like, you know, I'm 19. I deserve to be, be able to have sex when I want. And I just didn't want that. So we broke up for a brief period of time. Well... I finished high school and the entire time that I was in high school, I believed that I wasn't smart. So I really relied on my cheery disposition and uh, my charisma to really kind of get me through. I could talk myself into a good grade rather than actually earning it because I had this mentality that I wasn't smart and I didn't have anything to offer other than a a, a smile and a kind word. Um, So all my value was really external. I didn't really have any internal worth at this point. To the point where I would, I would dare say that there was some manipulative tendencies that I had in relationships to others because I, I wasn't being a true version of myself. And I didn't even know what a true version of myself was, right? Because my mom was always telling me what I think and how I felt. So how could I even be a true version of myself without uh, ever really having experienced it? So there was no malice behind my behavior But as a result, I had a tendency to draw people who were needy. And as a result of that, I ended up getting a stalker when I was in high school as well. And that's just because I just had a severe lack of boundaries as I was trying to, if you don't have internal boundaries, it's very difficult to have external boundaries. And when you're incredibly empathetic, it's very difficult when you don't have internal and external boundaries to really know where to draw the line. So. My empathy and assuming the best about others sometimes got me into trouble. And the stalker situation resolved itself. And I mean, well, the police were involved, but eventually it, it resolved itself and it became a moot point. So looking back on all of that, again, hindsight 2020, 20, I really had no internal or external boundaries. And that really lays uh, the foundation for what's coming next. Um, so
0: Hang tight here, <laughs> and such an important word, and it's a word that's used a lot. But I think sometimes it, we, I don't know, it loses its meaning, or we forget how important it is. We, we say, oh yeah, it's important to have boundaries. Yeah, boundaries are good, right? Why? What? What is the purpose of boundaries? Looking back, there's this reoccurring theme with so many stories that comes down to boundaries, mm-hmm. and it almost seems like it's the life skill that gets missed. Mm-hmm if you had to pick one thing to add into elementary and junior high curriculum, along with math and reading and science, you'd almost make it boundaries. So,
1: so so good. You know, I, as a recovering people pleaser, I always thought that boundaries meant creating walls And I've learned that boundaries really are a couple of things more. It's more about protecting love, first of all. But secondly, boundaries are not someone else's responsibility. They're our own. It's what I will allow to happen in my life, what I will allow to come my way and what my response will be if you walk across that boundary. And in people who have boundaryless lives, all things come in. All things are permissible. And then we scramble for how to respond because our internal response is like, wait, that wasn't right. But if you haven't been given that skill, if we haven't learned that in school through your parents or through life, we, we will scramble to respond to a boundary and, and be more responders rather than people who have a plan of action. So respond, uh, boundaries, God gives us boundaries uh, because he loves us. Um, not because he's punishing us, but if we don't learn that early on, we will often have a knee jerk reaction to when life, when things in life happen, Boundaryless people let everything in. So, and that was definitely a part of my story. So what ended up happening while Scott and I were, we had this brief breakup time. He decided he wanted to go be with a girl that would sleep with him. And he, he was in the military at this point and he was going to do his thing. And I thought, okay, I'll just move on with my life. And then one night I uh, was at a party and uh, I was having a really great time. And then the, then, then I had kind of like a, not a blackout, call it a brownout. Like I just, things got super fuzzy. And next thing I know, I was waking up to being sexually assaulted. And I, I, to this day, I remember the detail, all the details that were taking place in that moment. Because I was laying there on my back, my head felt like it weighed a thousand pounds and my arms felt as equally heavy and I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't move my body. I couldn't lift my head. All I could do was like shift my eyes to the left and the right and I could see what was happening to me and I could feel what was happening to me, but I couldn't quite compute it. And I didn't fully, fully understand what was taking place. And I saw someone walk in the room, watch what was happening, and walk out casually, like it was nothing. The next morning, I woke up on the couch, thinking, "Did that really just happen? That what? What was that?" I would never give myself. You know, you've heard the story, right? I would. I wasn't a girl who wouldn't was, didn't freely give herself away. So, what was I thinking? I didn't know that I had been drugged. So I was taking on responsibility for something that I didn't need to take on responsibility for, but I had woke up the next morning and he was sitting on the couch with me. And I just said, did we, you know, did we have sex last night? And, oh gosh, I gosh, I just didn't realize that you didn't, you you, you participated so much. I had, there's no way I was participating. I I remember the moment. And it wasn't until years later that I was watching some Oprah show and learning about what date rape drugs look like. And it was really through watching that show and learning that that's what had happened to me, that I was actually finally able to let go of, of the guilt that I had experienced because I thought, I thought I had instigated it. I thought I had allowed it to happen. But part of what that experience did was it made me never, ever. Ever want to date? I wanted someone safe and I wanted predictable. I never wanted to be in a position like that again. And so, what ended up happening is Scott ended up coming home from the military. Um, that happened in the summer. He came home, and on New Year's Eve, he and I were getting ready to go to a show uh, in San Francisco. I love Broadway shows and that type of thing. And uh, we're going to go to a dinner and a show in San Francisco. And I was stopping um, at this nail salon to get my nails done. And the phone rings are okay. This, this is back in the day. There's no cell phones. This is like rotary phone days, right? You know, so the phone rings at this nail place and they barely spoke English there. And all of a sudden someone brings me this, the phone and says, the phone's for you. I'm like, what? This is so weird. And they thought it was weird. I thought it was weird. Everyone thought it was weird. And it's my mom. And I'm getting my nails done. She's like, honey, this is the only chance I had to say this to you. I want you to know that Scott is going to propose to you tonight. And I thought you might say no. And you need to say yes. So you just need to know that that's what's happening. And it'll give you a few hours to process so that you can say yes. So again, the message, the driving message was, I don't know myself. I can't make decisions for myself. The reality that I'm experiencing really doesn't matter. My no doesn't really mean no. Do what I say because you don't really know. You're not smart enough to figure this out on your own. So I did what my mom said and it felt safe because my mom, I really believe my mom had the best intentions. She was doing what was best for me, but she always told me how to feel. I never really learned how to trust my own internal guide. And this was a huge example of that. So we got married in 1993, and I became a military wife, and we moved to North Carolina uh, where I had my first son, um, and, and then we eventually had my second son. I really thought that this was my happily ever after. My mom did know best. I did what she said, and it turned out great. We had a lot of fun together. We laughed. He was a great dad. And then at about year five of our marriage, it was about five months after I'd had my second son. He comes home and he sits on the couch and he's start, my husband starts to cry. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what is wrong? And he's just crying and crying and crying. I'm like, did you lose your job? Is, did someone die? Like what is going on? And he's just shaking his head and he's crying. I'm like, Scott, relax. It's not like you cheated on me. And he didn't say anything. And I Well, I reiterated it because, you know, it's not like you cheated on me. And he didn't say anything again. And then I got a more serious tone. I'm like, it's not like you cheated on me. He's like, I'm so sorry. And he goes on to tell the story about how he and the babysitter had been having a thing going. That became relatively public because we all went to church together and she had been previously in our youth group. And it was a really, really big disaster and absolutely devastating to me. So what we ended up doing, um, as we recovered, I decided I was going to be a good Christian wife and I was going to stay and we were going to bring glory to God, very Christian ease talking. And if for those listeners who will maybe not be believers in Christ, it's just a term that we use very churchy talk. It's just very churchy talk. And so I was going to be a good Christian wife and I stayed. Well, the pain continued to get greater and greater. And we decided to move up North to Oregon really to just start our life over again, because we were in a small town and I needed to not be in that small town with all those people. we were living a pretty white picket fence life at that time. um, When my eight-year-old son, then eight-year-old son, oh, I hate this part so much. I remember we were driving home and he says to me, What does daddy do in front of the computer with his robe on? And you could hear crickets in the car. Like, I'm trying to put this together. You have to also keep in mind that the internet was there was it was still AOL, it was still dial-up. Like you couldn't use your phone and the computer at the same time. So this concept of un- online pornography was just really, really new. And I started putting it together and I confronted him. And as a result, you know, I, you know, I made him apologize to our son for, and daddy's going to get better and do the, But I had no idea what this world was all about. What ended up happening though, is I was in a lot of pain. Like he was a good man with a good reputation and I did not want to ruin his reputation So I became more isolated in my pain. And anytime I brought up what I was experiencing, he would either minimize it or discount it or tell me I was throwing his stuff in his face. And so then I went to the church and the church wasn't particularly helpful. Again, they didn't know much about the issue either. So there just wasn't real support in this area of pornography at that time. So what happens when there's no support you uh, well, in my case, I swept it all under, under the rug, you know, the, uh, be accommodating. I don't want to be selfish, be agreeable, be cheery, going back to those old behaviors that made me feel loved early on in life. I started to start, started to use again. And honestly, after that, my marriage was on an upward trajectory. I mean, it was going really well where we had hit a new level of income we were just doing really, really well in life at this point. I felt, then I felt like i had finally arrived, right? Here we are. I can finally exhale after all the stuff that gone on with the babysitter and all that, I could exhale and just relax. But then the story of July 10th, 2005 happens. It was obviously a summer day as it was July. And then we were standing in the driveway and the minivan was packed because he was going to take the kids to California to see his parents and then come and and drop them off there for a couple of weeks and then come back. And then we were going to go back and get them later. But we're in the driveway, the van's packed, the kids are running around the yard and cop cars start driving past our house. One goes around the corner and parks, one pulls up to our house and parks. Actually two of them did. And then an unmarked car pulled up as well. And they start walking down our driveway with these very inquisitive looks on their face, like very intentional. And I remember thinking, oh, that's weird. Maybe they're looking for like a criminal in the neighborhood or something. I had no idea that that criminal would actually be my husband. So they come down and they they ask, they ask for him by name. I thought, oh gosh, that's weird. How do they know his name? Okay, so naive, folks. So naive. So they ask for his name and they go around the corner And they talked to him around the corner and I'm waiting by the van. And I said, so what's this all about? And there was this very obviously pregnant Latino lady that said, there's been allegations of child molestation. And the first thing I went back to was, oh, I wonder if the babysitter was actually under age when they were getting together. And then, so I said here in Oregon, and she says, uh, somewhere else. Like, Oh no, I I don't really understand what's going on. I mean, and I start to explain this whole situation where he had been with this babysitter and she says, no, this was, this was two nights ago. I'm like, what? I cannot even piece together two nights ago. So he comes back around the corner, goes to give me a kiss on my head. And I have to tell you, this is one of the times where my gut instinct actually kicked in and had a right response. He goes to kiss me and I turn my face quickly. Like, Finally, my gut said, no, this isn't right. And then he says, I'm going to go. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to go answer a few questions for the policeman. And they walk him down the street and they arrest him out of sight of my children. And my kids run up to the car and they're like, where's daddy going? And I said, uh, they're going to, uh, he's going to go help them figure out some things there. He's got some questions that he's going to answer for them. And my oldest says, dad's going to go get the bad guys. And the two, my two sons, they run off and they're giggling like crazy and having such a good time. Meanwhile, there's this cop standing here and this pregnant woman. I'm like, okay, they can leave any time now what's going on. And my world suddenly got really small because she says to me, uh, Jennifer, you need to go inside and you need to go tell your boys to come with me. And I'm like, excuse me. She's my name is so-and-so I'm from child protective services. You need to go inside and tell your boys to come with me. And I start to panic. My eyes are filling up with water and my heart starts beating really fast. And I could, I now understood that the other cop was there for me in case I didn't comply. And I just, I remember saying, will you bring them back? Will you bring them back? Will you bring them back? And she's like, yes, I'll bring them back. I promise to bring them back. And so she goes, you just, if they see you scared, they're going to be scared. You need to straighten up, pull yourself together and tell your kids to come with me. So I go back in the house, tell the kids to go with her. And then they all drive off. So the cop car goes away. The lady goes away with my kids and I'm standing in my driveway. Husband's gone. Kids are gone. Like I guess we're not going to California. Wait, no, no. My my whole life just changed. Something in this paradigm just shifted. Everything just shifted. I immediately go to. <laughs> I immediately call my friend Don. I'm like, they just came for Scott and they just arrested him and they took my kids and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she lived a couple of hours away. I said, I don't know what to do. And she's like, um, um, clean just clean. Just start cleaning your house, head to toe, front to back, everywhere. Just clean, 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 clean. Don't think, don't think, just clean. I'm on my way. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I, so I go into survival mode and I start cleaning and I clean my house all with like 30 minutes, you know, cause it was just a frantic clean and rage cleaning. You get it. Rage cleaning is a, is a thing. It's very handy. And in this case, it was very handy. And, and so I called her back up. I'm done cleaning. What do I do now? She's like, just hang tight. Don't go anywhere. Because of this, because I was waiting for the uh, police to come back and and interview me and whatnot. So there's a lot of details that go into all of that as as I'm sure you can imagine. But essentially, at one point, I couldn't get a hold. I couldn't get a hold of my husband and I couldn't find my children. And I started to panic because I couldn't get a hold of anyone. All I knew that is that everyone, all my securities were gone, all my people were gone. Eventually I had a detective interview me and they confiscated some things from my home and, and then I could go get my kids. So eventually I did get my kids back. (laughs) And that's an interesting story to hear their experience of that. Essentially what ended up happening though, was we were the top of the news for a very long time, probably well, July to November, probably usually the top story of the news and you know i was really walking through a lot of shock i was trying to figure out how to grieve and how to walk my sons who were 7 and 10 at the time how to walk them through their grief and their loss and the public scandal i i was suddenly single i had no education i had no idea how i was going to take care of my kids I, I was i was wrestling with things with like uh we had chickens. And what am I going to do with the chickens? Like everything felt like this most monumental, daunting task because I didn't know what to do with my life at this time. So I ended up going back to school and I had a lot of support from my community and from my church. So um, I'm very grateful for that, a lot of support from my family and from my friends and of course my sister as well. So um, without all of their support, I don't know where I would have been through this, this time in my life, but I ended up going to school and I ended up becoming a massage therapist. And that's kind of where, well, he, well, let me say this much in all of that, while I was in school, he ended up getting sentenced to 20 years in prison. And, and so then we knew, well, I knew that it was going to be final no matter what, because of the acts he had done against my son's friends isn't that just a, that's just a horrible thought. I hate that so much. I, I had such amazing friends and they stuck with me through all of this. To this day, we're still very, very, very good friends. We link arms in this tragedy, which I think is often very abnormal, but the parents of the girls that my husband had abused are some of the most phenomenal people you will ever meet. And I don't know where I'd be without their support also
0: during that time as well listeners i know you're processing a lot right now because this is a it's a lot to process and maybe some of you have had a similar story probably a lot of you are are kind of a little bit just in shock and and imagining what this might have been like for jen or what you might have thought or felt or done in those moments one of the key things you hit on was support and it's interesting that earlier in your story you were kind of mentioned a time where like, well, actually the church wasn't very helpful. And then here we hear about a time where maybe the church body was helpful. And we have an opportunity to be helpful. We're called to be helpful. We're called to be supportive. We're called to be loving. We're called to come alongside people in their grief and pray alongside them with them, not just as as one speaker noted in in her story a few episodes back, not just stand in the corner and pray at them like oh you're we're just going to be over here and i don't want to get too close to your mess so i'm going to just turn it into gossip under the christianese blanket of prayer as opposed to genuine authentic like okay well you know to use an old phrase what would jesus do <laughs> how would he come alongside you in all of this and there's quite a bit more to your story listeners we are actually going to pause here and come back next time for the rest of Jen's story. You do not want to miss the rest of it. There's so much more to come. There's so much more that she goes through. There's so much more that God redeems. But I wanted to end this section with that idea of support, that there was some support there for you, that God did not leave you alone. I wanted to ask if you could, you know, even in just one minute, mention to the listeners, all right, if you have somebody in your life that's just gone through a trauma, whatever that trauma is, how can you actually be supportive?
1: Oh my goodness, that is such a fantastic question. I can I can say from living this out. First of all, ask what their needs are. Chances are they may not be able to identify a need, and that's okay. But always asking first and not assuming what someone's need is is a very uh, respectful thing to do for that individual. And if they say nothing then do nothing. But I have to say that the people that were most healing for me in this process were the people who came along and sat in a room and didn't say a word with me, which can be so awkward. It can be so awkward for that person. Cause I've been that person now for someone else. And you just want to say something or do something. So tangibly you can sit in a room with someone and just be in the presence of their grief. You can do something like what some people did for me. They started a trust fund and people donated money to help me get through. One thing just from as, as a massage therapist, like I mentioned, I went to massage school. One thing that not to do is if someone's crying, rubbing someone's back can actually interrupt uh, the neural pathways that someone is while they're processing grief. So really try not to touch someone when they're grieving, but just being in the same room with them. So that they can go through that grief process with someone present, but not interrupting just the physical part of healing and words of encouragement, not Christian ease, not spiritual bypass, not telling them they're going on a grand adventure. I feel so bad for the person that said that to me. She's apologized so many times, great words, wrong time, but just really consider what you
0: say before you say it
1: and just create space to be with someone.
0: You said to be present with their grief, and that's something I think our culture is so uncomfortable with. Oh yes, (laughs) we we do not do that well. No, at all. We do everything to medicate, not feeling it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, as we close, just for you know this for this part, as we close this episode, I would like to ask for you to pray for the listeners, especially those who are experiencing some kind of trauma, some kind of grief, some kind of shock reminding them that there is that there's still hope Mm,
1: yeah great well heavenly father i i come before you now with the full knowledge of your presence through these moments god if i had known then what i know now i just wouldn't have feared so much and i wouldn't have been in so much anxiety over what was to come so god for women that are in fear for, for women who are in anxiety for women who are uh confused where they're where they're experiencing betrayal binds and 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 things that are getting in the way of even just processing their daily life god i ask through the healing power of your Holy spirit that you will whisper to them. You are not alone. I see you. I hear you. I'm here and I'm doing something, even though it feels like I'm not, I'm doing something. And if you just hold on, you'll see, you will see that I love you and I have good plans for you. So for the woman that is struggling to hold on tonight, due to broken relationships or broken circumstances or loneliness or whatever it may be, Lord. May she know full well, deep in her heart somewhere that you see her pain, you know it, and you are doing good things on her behalf. Friends, if I could encourage you to do anything, please know that we go before you and we tell our stories to remind you that you can get through this moment, you can get through this day, You can get through this week, you can get through this year, you can get through this decade. And the best is yet to come. It is still coming for you. So hang on today. And then if you need us again tomorrow, hang on tomorrow. And we'll keep doing this until you get through this season of your life. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking time to prepare your story. I know there's so much to it, and I know we're only part way through, but I really appreciate. All that you've shared so far, there's so many important points you've made. And ladies, thank you so much for listening to this first part of Jen's story. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast so that way you'll get an alert as soon as part two is published. And so you can hear the rest of her story and the amazing hope within it. We love getting to share these stories with you and hope to have you back next time. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast,
1: a ministry of Calvary Mac.
0: For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.